This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. So we've come down here to the centre of town and towering almost five and a half metres above me is a statue of a man. His head resting thoughtfully on his left hand and he's leaning on a cane. And the inscription on the statue reads, Edward Colston, born 1636, died 1721, erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. I find it quite interesting that he's called a virtuous man, (laughs) especially where his history is steeped in suffering. In 1680, Colston became involved in the Royal African Company and boats branded RAC captured tens of thousands of people in West Africa and transported them to the Americas where they were sold. This trade, if you can call it that, made Colston rich, really, really rich, and he gave a lot of money to the city of Bristol. These contributions led to his name being woven into the fabric of the city. There are streets named after Colston, Colston Tower, Colston School, and the soon-to-be-renamed Colston Hall. My name's Jasmine Ketibua Foley, and I'm a journalist and broadcaster at the BBC and at community radio station Ujima here in Bristol. Growing up in London as a woman of colour, I never really had conversations with people about my roots in Ghana, about black history, my identity. I never questioned or searched until I came here to Bristol actually, and Bristol's slave trade history and the history of Afro-Caribbean community steeped in music and struggle and strength meant I was always invited to actually have those conversations. As a result, Bristol was actually the place where I first ever called myself black. So for this week's Open Country, I'm going to look into how the slave trade shaped the landscape of Bristol. But I really want to speak to the increasing number of people who are reframing Bristol's relationship with the slave trade. A short walk from Colston's statue is the Colston Hall, which is one of Bristol's concert venues. In 2017, it was announced that the Colston Hall would be renamed when it reopens after refurbishment in 2020. This decision attracted a lot of debate, and some people were really against it for what they saw as airbrushing history. But others followed the hall's example, and in 2018, Colston Primary School became Cotton Gardens, Church services that were held to commemorate Colston's life changed their focus and a pub dropped his name. Alongside me is Dr Madge Dresser, Honorary Professor of Historical Studies at the University of Bristol. So Madge, you've been writing and talking about Bristol and slavery for a really long time, but I've heard that your words prompted a bit of characteristic Bristolian art. Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, uh, in the late 90s, I was part of a small team at Bristol Museum uh, trying to get uh, the history of slavery commemorated in a museum exhibition, Slavery Trail, and uh, various other things. And and after people took that in, the next day, splashed across the 
1895 statue of Edward Colston in the city center, in red paint were the words, F off slave trader. Uh, you know, it's correlation rather than cause and effect, but I think probably it had something to do with the evening before. Right now, yeah. we're at the soon-to-be-renamed Colston Hall. Why is this location significant apart from the name? This site, actually, when I started investigating it, has multiple associations with uh, slavery and the Atlantic slave economy that opened up. We're not just talking about the trade in people, but the trade in commodities, both from Bristol as a port to West Africa and trade for slaves, the export of goods to the uh, sugar colonies and the slave colonies of America, and also the export of slave-produced goods like tobacco and sugar to the refining industries of Bristol. So that whole thing actually really constituted Bristol. But it Colston Hall site's fascinating because it used to be a kind of a monastery, and then when Henry VIII took it over, he sold it to his cronies, and a merchant in the 1550s owned this great house on this very site because where you see the kind of fountains in the built-up area in the city centre, actually the River Froome came right up, so the ships were sailing right up to the front of this house. And the first black person recorded in Bristol in the records was a security guard or, or gardener for this great house. So Colston Hall sits on the site of this great house. So Madge, you actually do walking tours around Bristol talking about that history, that slave trade history. How do people react when you talk to them about these spaces? I think most people are open to maybe having their horizons broadened a little bit. That sounds patronising on my part, but I, I think people just don't know. You know, they're brought, we're brought up in a culture which has a particular discourse about empire and Bristol's history. And so how are people, educated as they are, to know this if no one tells them? And so I had, I had a very moving encounter with a woman who was a Colston's girl graduate, you know, in her 60s or 70s. And she said, I feel really cheated that I haven't been told this wider history. And so I think there's room, you know, it's easy to just dismiss people as, uh, you know, being old-fashioned or racist, etc. But I think, you know, there are a lot of people who will genuinely shift their perspectives when they are told all the truth. And the other thing I think is important is that knowing about this history isn't shaming Bristol, it's making it more interesting because when you bring out all the contradictions. You know, the very fact that Colston was a religious man, a sectarian, uh, he didn't like people who didn't belong to his religion and his politics, but he also transformed Bristol, but he also made a lot of his money on the backs of unimaginable suffering. That's interesting. That's a human condition. So I've walked from the centre of Bristol up Bristol's infamously steep Park Street to the entrance of the University of Bristol. I've made my way into a large, grand, beautiful-looking hall with Gothic ceilings, and it's so echoey and so resonant in here. This is the Wills Memorial Building, and it opened in 1925 and is named after Henry Overton Wills, the former Chancellor of the University and part of the Wills family that made a lot of money in the tobacco trade. With me is Oliver Atelli, who will become the university's professor of the history of slavery in January. For you coming to Bristol to work and going to places like Bath to work, what does it feel like when you look around and you look at the buildings and you see that history? How does that make you feel? 
very hopeful. I'm thinking, oh, this is, wow, this is a fantastic opportunity. Here I am, this is my chance to tell the story in a different way, with my perspective, perspective of a black woman, of African, you know, a person of African descent, my chance to teach that history differently, my chance to actually share that history and connect the dots and perhaps change people's mind in, about certain things, about that kind of notion of superiority. It's very beautiful and therefore we are fantastic people. No, it's very beautiful, but it was built on the sweat and the blood of millions of people. And part of teaching that story and that past is obviously going to encompass all the other geographical places in Bristol, like Colston Road and Colston Hall. How do you feel about Colston Hall and the history there? I think Bristol has done amazingly because uh, 20 years ago nobody thought that Coulson Hall would change their their name. So um, we're moving slowly towards not just a, a recognition of a, a past that is still traumatic for a certain kind of population, but a kind of reckoning is coming in terms of linking past with present. It's a really contentious issue and I think some people are really angry about it. Some people kind of just want it to not talk about it anymore. Seeing Colston's name written across the geographical locations in Bristol brings up a lot for people. I mean, what would you have to say about that sort of traumatic element of seeing that all the time? Well, I think Colston was a catalyst and we really focused on Colston, but he wasn't the only one. He was one of the most important person in terms of the links with the history of enslavement, in particular, the very nitty-gritty of the slave trade. The idea of putting a plaque or the idea of removing the statue is really a sign of a bigger issue, which is really the question of how do you address the question of enslavement? And I understand the anger, the kind of trauma, the um, people not wanting to talk about it, but we need to talk about it. Uh, if the figure of Coulson has been part of the history of the city, why stop now? In the next interview, you're going to hear an account of racism that includes some strong racial language. If you think you might be offended, you might want to turn down the sound for the next 30 seconds. So I grew up in Noah West in the 60s, and um, all my memories of growing up in Noah West are quite traumatic. I thought my name was nigger or wog or coon. That's just how it was. So it affected me, I would say, in terms of identity, not being accepted, being an outsider all the time. But I normalised it. My name is Lynn Marino and I am co-founder of RISE, Recognising Individual Successes and Efforts, which is a community social enterprise non-profit organisation that uh, is in Bristol and I work professionally as a counsellor. I was about 18 and I got beat up down on the city centre by uh, a National Front person, me and my sister, and that was a physical scar, but it was also an emotional scar. And I started to kind of um, understand that Bristol was segregated at a very early age. I didn't go to Clifton until I was 17 because you grew up in Eastern St. Paul's, you grew up and we knew our boundaries. In 1992, I went on to train in therapy and I got funding from Bristol Black Business Association and I was able to open up my 
my therapy centre in Park Street in Clifton. And that was a, an eye-opener simply because it, it was the first time I experienced white middle-class racism. It wasn't just people off the street, you know, it was business, it was senior management people that were coming to me, speaking to me on the phone, but coming in to see me and literally sometimes just turning around and walking out or making an excuse or not coming back. So I went through all that. I stuck it out for about five years, and that's not the reason that I, I left, because I actually did very well. But it was still a struggle. I was um, the only black woman on Park Street in Clifton at that time. And um, it was noticeable, and I think it kind of encouraged me to where I am today. I went to Bristol Museum, and there was a picture that I saw of Holston on his deathbed, and holding his hand was his black maidservant. And I remember looking at that picture and that traumatised me. That really hurt me. Um, to think that it's become normalised. I don't think that seeing a statue, that doesn't bother me. What bothers me more is the fact that we don't have representation of the African heritage. People of Bristol that came here, my father and, and many like him that came here and helped to build this city. You can go to Liverpool and you can see the images of the African influence and they, they own that. And until Bristol owns its past, I don't think we're able to move forward. Our journey has brought us next to the old Vic Theatre in Bristol to meet writer and performer Edson Burton. Edson also gives historical tours of Bristol and he's been involved in discussions about Bristol and a legacy of the slave trade for years. And he's currently in rehearsal for his new show, Anansi and the Grand Prize. We know that to come, and me will make it happen. We will make it happen. One of your ideas will catch on, and me, when my mama have a drink recipe. Pass down for your mother, pass down for Edson, tell me about the show. So, Anansi and the Grand Prize is an adaption of the Caribbean folktale of Anansi. In fact, there's several tales. Anansi is a character, a trickster figure, and the origins of the Anansi stories begin in West Africa and obviously through the forced migration of people of African descent to the Americas, Anansi reappears there. Changed, but most of the basic ingredients of the Anansi story are in our tale. You said that in the provenance of the show you talk about forced migration. How does that come up when you speak about it? In some ways we're quite keen to present the Anansi story as presenting a different dimension to Caribbean history and the story of basically people of African descent generally. So it's just a, a moment of explanation how come an answer begins here in Africa and then lands in the Americas. No, I think a lot, of, a lot of the time there is a very forced narrative of what has happened in history to do with the slave trade. When you, sort of away from the play and talking more about your experience in Bristol, when you talk about that history, what kinds of conversations do you have with people? There is a lot of interest in Bristol in the transatlantic slave trade. The first exhibition that was held at the City Museum in 1998-1999 had a record attendance, similarly again for the Empire and Commonwealth Museum, on the other hand, there is defensiveness and there is a degree of uh, preciousness about 
key figures in Bristol's history that people feel are almost sort of being stained and besmirched by this conversation. So there's a bigger struggle going on, which is not just in Bristol. It's about having a mature understanding of British history, one which allows us to celebrate some great things, but also to look honestly and critically at those things which are much darker. It means then that we have to hold in our consciousness a great philanthropist and a slave owner, just as we do today with billionaires who might give money on the one hand to charities, but whose money may have also come from um, low-wage pay almost to the point of exploitation. So this is the, the conundrum, and for me, it's almost kind of getting to the essence of that and say, this is what history is like. It's like our individual stories, the light and dark and shade, but in extremists. So another issue is what are the visible markers on the landscape? How do we talk about the enslaved? How are they inscribed on the landscape in Bristol? But certainly, I think the dissatisfaction has been is what is the redress? And within that, people look at this sort of nature of structural inequality. To what extent is the structural disadvantages that people of colour and people of African descent in particular suffer and how are they related to the slave trade? So that this is a contemporary issue. It's about connecting the historical to the contemporary and then what is the redress that's going to happen therefore. We can get it if we really want. We can get it if we really want. But we must try. Try and try. Try and try. I will succeed at last. So I've come here to Bristol Museum to talk to a group of young artists who are looking at the objects in this space and really questioning the history and the provenance of those objects. Stacey Olika, who led the project, is alongside me. Stacey, which objects were selected and why? We've got the Benin bronze, um, which we're standing in front of, which is from Nigeria. And this object actually focuses on the violent and painful history of colonialism, colonial rule um, that the British Empire had on Africa, countries in Africa, Nigeria. And one of the reasons that it's no longer in Africa is because it was literally forcibly removed from Benin, involving a lot of killing, a lot of murder, um, unfortunately, to the Nigerian people in order for this object to be sitting here in Bristol Museum today. What did you feel like when you found out that these are objects that have been taken from another place? It feels like a little part of you is stolen. I feel this sense of 100% it should go back. But then I also feel this distance from, like, my original land. But um, in a way, that still doesn't matter because, like, where it originally has come from is so important. And the fact that it is from where my ancestors are from, like, is even of more due importance to me. Should we go have a look at the rest of the pieces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do it. Let's have a look. So also here are two students who worked on this project, Danelle Asare and Ade Shoemimo. I want to hear from all of you guys, why is it important to tell the history of these objects in this museum? So Ade, why is it important to you? I think it's important due to the fact that through, throughout history, in terms of what we've been taught, we've never really been told the full story or even sometimes the correct story. I mean, if we talk about UK in general... There's only certain aspects that are taught, like, let's say, GCSE within history, and there's so many stuff outside of that. We need the full concentration, without any dilution, to then 
enlighten people, give people clarity, not just in terms of for history, but in terms of applying certain aspects within life. Um, it could be from financial to leadership to just understanding culture within a society of different cultures, minimizing um, ignorance more, which then can help us understand each other more instead of pushing each other further away. The now. I think it's very important that the history of these objects are told. And the reason I think this is because what we have is very sort of narrow perspectives. And we have pieces that are presented with very little context. So it's important that the audience has an opportunity to sort of make conclusions for themselves. But without having this cherry-picked information, and I think that allows them to you know, be fully informed and actually understand history more than from the perspective of the British Empire, see it from the perspective of you know, the people that were actually affected. What do you think would happen if people genuinely knew about that history? Do you think it would make them feel uncomfortable? Yes, I do think it would make them uncomfortable, but also it would supplement their experience within the museum. So now what you have is that work is being displayed without much context. I think museums could perhaps supplement this experience by creating more interaction with the piece so you can learn more about the culture. Also, in terms of what you said, would it make them feel uncomfortable? I feel like, yes, it would, but it gives a more raw, natural representation. Almost like, you know how medicine, some medicine doesn't taste so great, but you have to take it. And Stacey, I mean, why is it important to you for the history of these objects to be told? The reason I think that it's important is it's time for our narrative to be told um, from our perspective. Um, so I think with this, especially being in the museum, we start from young. The generation before us has really set the pace for us to even be in the space now talking about it. And now, as young people, we have the opportunity to set, to set it for the generation to come so that they can really just knock it out of the park. So I've come five miles northwest of Bristol to Hendry, to St Mary's Church, because in this churchyard, amongst the gravestones, one headstone stands out. They've got some bright coloured paint on them, some pinks and whites, and but inscribed on the headstones, it says, Here lieth the body of Scipio Africanus, Negro servant to the Right Honourable Charles William, Earl of Suffolk and Braden, who died... On the 21st of December, 1720, aged 18 years old. I find that really shocking that they died so young. So, so young. And in the, on the headstone in front of it, there's another inscription. It says, I who was born a pagan and a slave, now sweetly sleep a Christian in my grave. What though my hue was dark, my saviour's sight shall change this darkness into radiant light. Such grace to me my Lord on earth has given to recommend me to my Lord in heaven, whose glorious second coming here I wait with saints and angels, him to celebrate. It's really strong wording there about the description of Scipio. What thou, my hue, was dark, my saviour's sight shall change this darkness into radiant light it kind of insinuates that Scipio's in a better place now because he's 
surrounded by light and not black anymore. He's an angel now, or they're an angel now. It's almost a little bit offensive to read that language. But after speaking to everyone today, it's, it's, it is quite heavy to be in a space like this and to see a place where a real person was, a real person that was in that slave trade history of Bristol and to know that they had a life here. And very little is known about Scipio except that he was the servant to the Earl of Suffolk at the Great House in Hembury. And it's a shame that we will never find out any more than that. <laughs>